Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Here's what we can do to allow this injured person to do what they love to do before. And here's how much it will cost. And that is something that you can wrap your arms around in awarding damages in this case. Please rise, court is now in session. All right, well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. I'm a little I'm a little cold. It's, it's cold yes. in Atlanta right now. It, it is cold in Savannah right now, which is really is uh, more important than Atlanta. But um, but yeah, so, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It, it, it is it is cold down here. Cold for us, at least. I'm sure, you know, my uh, relatives up north would uh, would laugh at me about what we think is cold. I, yeah, I think a lot of people would would laugh yeah. at us. And and it's not like we're outdoors right now. Yeah. Um, but you know, I moved recently and so I'm like very worried that about like my furnace, like this is the first time I'm using it. It seems right. like noisy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really trying to take it easy. So I think it's like 60 degrees in here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and and you hope that uh that it works because you probably didn't test that out when you bought the place. I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I'm just hoping if it can just make it through this year and it's something I can deal with next year, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I happen to know that you have taken up uh, a new hobby uh, that you uh, revealed to me yesterday and, and probably don't want anybody to know, but I'm going to let it out that you've taken up sewing. So you can make yourself some uh, some clothes to wear for uh, for for uh, winter and, and keep yourself warm. I have. I have. I've taken I've taken up sewing. I thought you were going to talk about um, my interest in becoming a certified electrician. <laughs> that that yes. was the that was the other part of it. <laughs> yeah. You had two interests. One was sewing. One was uh, becoming a, an, an electrical engineer. Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting real weird during uh, quarantine and COVID. <laughs> yeah, so the, uh, the the rabbit holes you go down. When yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm getting even weirder than before, but. Yeah. Enough about me. We have a very we have one of our most exciting episodes today. We, we have a we have a fantastic guest, and uh, and and I just want to I want to say something first before we uh, we we bring on Dan Huff, who uh, who is a, a fantastic trial lawyer and uh, just an all around good guy, uh, but happens to be on the opposite side of the V uh, from us on cases. Dan's uh, Dan's the biggest part of Dan's work is doing uh, defense work and doing medical malpractice defense. And he has built a firm uh, this, you know, not only here in um, Georgia, in Atlanta, Columbus and Gainesville, uh, but has also expanded to Raleigh, North Carolina, I saw. Uh, and they're just one of the uh, premier uh, medical malpractice defense firms uh, in Georgia, in the southeast. And um, and Dan, uh, you know, let me before we, we go on and on about uh, all of your accomplishments, let me just welcome you to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Congratulations to you guys on what is a terrific podcast that I'm definitely a consumer of. And um, and knowing Yvonne's new hobby, I think that all guests starting today should get a uh, handmade sweater yeah. with the great, with the great pod, trials podcast logo on it. We, that that is in the works, and you know, like maybe a, a Christmas sweater with the uh, with the great trials podcast logo on it. I think. I think I, that's a great idea. I love that idea. I've uh, I've got I've got an interest in sewing and nothing to sew. So <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, um, before we talk about Dan, I, I, I was going to say so. Um, you know, so we we have done this show is mainly. Uh, I mean, we've never uh, made it a, a 
um, a secret that we're, we, we're plaintiff's lawyers. We do plaintiff's work. Um, and we mainly have talked to plaintiff's lawyers and we, you know, we've gotten a couple of comments on, uh, our reviews about people talking about that. We don't talk to enough defense lawyers. Uh, and I would just encourage those people who are going to, who feel like they need to give us a bad review because of that, <laughs> um, to, you know, they can, they can email us. There's a, we have an email info at great Uh, they can email us and make that suggestion, but I will say Dan is not our first defense lawyer on here. We had uh, Victor vital on, uh, from Houston, Texas, who talked about a case that he defended and, and got a defense verdict on. Uh, but, but, uh, I, I will admit it's not, um, the, uh, overwhelming uh, guests that we have on the show are, are not from the defense side. Um, and, uh, you know, probably because most defense lawyers don't want to talk to talk to me. I mean, you know, um, Dan's one of the few. No. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, but seriously, so Dan, uh, let me let me just talk a little bit about Dan. First of all, Dan is uh, based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, his firm is Huff Powell Bailey. And uh, if you want to look up Dan, you can look him up at HuffPowellBailey.com. That's H-U-F-F-P-O-W-E-L-L-B-A-I-L-E-Y.com. Uh, but uh, Dan um, is an accomplished trial lawyer. He's tried uh, over 110 jury trials, including uh, cases against uh, against uh, me, against my partners, uh, uh, against unsuccessfully. <laughs> I wasn't going to get there, uh, but uh, but you know, um, but uh, you know, and, and and I think and I know we even have some cases right now that we're still uh, across from each other on. So um, so Dan is a uh, um, uh, a fantastic lawyer, uh, and you know. Um, He's he's one of the one of the uh, lawyers on the uh, on the other side who you can get along with. You can have a good time. But when it comes time to represent his client, he's going to do everything he possibly can. He's going to uh, uncover every stone. He's going to you know go out there and interview all the witnesses. I mean, you, it, you know, uh, while I, I enjoy uh, talking to Dan and I enjoy his uh, his friendship, it, uh, it's not like you know, when Dan shows up on a case, I know it's going to be a, an, an easy case or anything like that. So, um, but let me, let me talk a little bit about your background, Dan. Wait, so, Steve, I just want to say that, that except for a few of the plaintiff's lawyers that we've had on who we've worked with them, this is kind of also a unique thing for us in that this, you know, Dan's firm, we work with them, but on the, on, on, on the other side of the cases. So I think it's really cool for us to be able to talk about um, you know, a firm that we work with on cases and you got to say for, you know, when Dan's firm is involved, it's like, you're not going to spend time on some of the stupid stuff, right? time wasty <laughs> stuff that can happen in all these cases. You're going to spend the time on the stuff that really matters. And when they're in it, you know, that they're, I mean, there are some firms where you're like, they're not going to try the case. And then there are some firms where you're like, they'll try the case. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, Dan has tried a lot of cases. Um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to take you back though, Dan, because I was reading your, uh, reading your, your bio and I, and I noticed that you come from the, the mean streets, uh, of Lincoln, Nebraska, that it was a very tough childhood. It's a very uh, tough place. Right. Yeah. right exactly. Went to, uh, both, uh, went to the university of ne Nebraska at Lincoln, uh, for undergrad and then went on to law school at university of Nebraska. And then for some reason, uh, you know, just came to the, uh, the, the quiet, uh, Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, in order to uh, to open up your practice. Um, yeah, I was looking for some relaxation. Nebraska right. is a very fast paced yeah. place. So absolutely. It was good to get you know, kick back a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I guess the one question is, is had you ever been to Atlanta before you came here and started working? 
No, no. I, I, uh, I had not really, I'd only been east of the Mississippi twice before I came to Atlanta for the first time in 1990. And, uh, and I was amazed how many trees there were. That was the most <laughs> remarkable thing from where I came from. But yeah. Right, right. And now I've lived here longer than I lived in Nebraska. Yep. Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing that, that, that I live in Savannah and I, Savannah is now the longest city that I've lived in uh, longer than anywhere else. Um, so interesting how things like that happen. But uh, let me let me talk a little bit about your accomplishments, Dan. Not only is Dan uh, year in and year out named as a super lawyer, uh, named as one of the top 100 lawyers in Georgia, AV rated. He's a member of the uh, uh, Fellow of American College of Trial Lawyers. He was the president of the Georgia chapter of the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABODA. Um, and as I said, has tried a number of cases and uh, um, writes and speaks on trial strategy and, and medical malpractice uh, all over the country. Uh, and, and I noticed that you also, uh, I don't know what CMLA is, but you're a basketball coach. I, I noticed that. Yeah, so that's the um, Catholic Metropolitan Basketball League in Atlanta. So, nice. But it's been, a, when, I, when I injured myself and could no longer play <laughs> years ago, I decided to coach for a while and try and impart some good skills to uh, my children and their friends. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And are you a real taskmaster as a coach? Or you make them run lots of laps and things like that? I do. Yeah, I believe in. I believe in a lot of practice. Um, certainly, and we. I mean, the sad story of those teams is we we had many undefeated seasons and then lost in the playoffs pretty much every year. So um, I was more of a regular season coach, not a. Uh, not a um, <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> but I, uh, I, 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 could, I had a similar. I, I coached uh, my daughter's or or was an assistant coach my daughter's soccer team for many years, and so uh, I, we 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 had some good years, and then some years that, that weren't as good. And uh, and you know when you watch a little uh, you know nine and ten year old girls lose in the playoffs, I mean it's uh, it's disaster. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, well, let's talk about this case, Dan. So uh, the, the case that we're talking about was tried last year, September of 2019 in DeKalb County. Uh, the name of the case was Arlene Thomas uh, individually and as, as administrator for the estate of Lisa Calhoun. And Dan's client was AJ uh, Josie, a radiologist from um, uh, Atlanta and uh, in his practice of radiology associates of the cab uh, PC. And, um, and I, I'm going to give the facts of the case, Dan, and you can correct me where I get it wrong. But, um, but essentially what happened in this case is that uh, Miss Calhoun uh, came in on June 26th of 2014, complaining of right foot pain and right leg swelling. Um, and she went to her podiatrist, which was a, a Dr. Mundy, who practiced with the village podiatry centers. Uh, and she was given a, I guess, sort of an initial diagnosis of, uh, of phlebitis uh, or, or DVTs. Um, and so was sent over to DeKalb Medical Center for an ultrasound uh, that was given by a, a, uh, a technologist over there and basically came back with the... Um, diagnosis of a, um, a partially occluded, a subacute partially occluded thrombus in her, uh, in her deep veins, which uh, is a very dangerous situation. Um, it, it, you know, can lead to a, a blood clot and a pulmonary embolus and to um, a stroke or to a heart attack. And, um, 
And essentially, the I'll tell it from what the allegation was, is that after she was given the or they found this by doing the ultrasound, um, the allegation was that this was never told to Miss Calhoun. It was never told to the patient. Um, Dr. Joshi was the one who actually, uh, you know, read uh, uh, read the ultrasound and and wrote the medical record. Um, there was some evidence that uh, that the technologist who had taken it had called back to the podiatrist uh, practice and left a message with Willie. Um, and, and, and I, I noticed from the complaint, and it looks like during trial, it can't, you figured out who Willie was, but I noticed from the complaint, nobody knew who Willie was, uh, but Willie was, was somebody who worked for, um, the village podiatry centers and, and reported that, uh, that she had this finding. Uh, and then long story short is, is that, uh, from the plaintiff side, it was alleged that she was never told uh, that this had happened and by either Dr. Mundy, by the technologist, or by Dr. Joshi. Um, and so, uh, fast forward to July 1st, uh, 2014, when she com comes back to DeKalb Medical Center to the emergency room, uh, complaining of shortness of breath and chest pains. Um, it was, uh, found that she had a, um, uh, bilateral pulmonary, uh, embolus at that, at, at that point. And, um, and it was reported to her that she had had a, a finding of this, uh, you know, occluded, uh, thrombus. And she told, reported in the medical records that that had never been told to her. Um, she, uh, um, shortly thereafter went into cardiac arrest and then, uh, about, uh, it looked like about 15, 20 minutes later, uh, was pronounced dead and, and died. So the allegation in the case was that, uh, you know, that, you know, one, that this was a very serious, um, um, finding on the ultrasound. And I don't think anybody disputed that and that it needed to be reported to, uh, Ms. Calhoun and that, um, and then I think it was disputed whether or not she would have needed to go immediately to the emergency room that day had it been reported to her. Um, but, um, but that was the basis of the case. And I, and I'm guessing, Dan, it sounds like by the time trial came around, because I noticed from the complaint that village podiatry centers and, and Dr. Mundy were, were sued, they had resolved or, or, or were no longer in the case by the time trial came around. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's, that's a, that's a perfect recitation of the facts, Steve. And, um, the only the only thing that probably wasn't apparent from the materials I sent you was that Miss Calhoun had just recently gone on a trip to Mexico, um, and so she had just come back um, on that trip when she began having the foot pain. And right. as as most people know, and certainly a lot of the jurors in our case knew, you know that's that kind of travel tends to increase the risk for leg clots and, and DVTs. Um, but you're right. So the initial lawsuit was against Dr. Monday and her practice, Dr. Joshi and, and his group, and as well as the technician, uh, Ms. Smith, who was the one who actually did the ultrasound. Right. Okay. And I, I, not only had she been to, I think, Mexico, but it sounded like she'd also been maybe to South Africa or something. I read that in one of the clips of the medical records, but it sounded like she had done pretty extensive traveling. Yeah, so one of the one of the really hard parts about this case um, was who Lisa Calhoun was. So she was she was in her early fifties. 
Um, she grew up in a very uh, difficult family situation. She had a very loving sister who was a plaintiff. Um, she went to the University of Michigan. She had three degrees. Um, she became an executive at Coca-Cola and traveled around the world doing IT work for Coke. Oh, okay. um, and as part of traveling around the world, she became interested in um, poverty in other countries, and she began to do mission work while she was working at Coke. So in her early 50s, not, not long at all before she died, she had resigned and was going to do full-time mission work, um, not only overseas, but also in, um, in Georgia, where she had been really active in the foster parent program and had different, she bought houses and condos for uh, battered women to live in, to give them relief from their family situations. And so she was um, an incredible, incredible person. Right. And so, I mean, it was, it was a very uh, emotional case whenever anybody talked about Lisa and who she was. Um, you probably saw that in that that's why the economist calculations of her, what her future lost income was going to be was really just future lost benefits. Right. Okay. She was, so it was, it was not what you would expect for somebody who was in their early fifties for lost income estimates. I think it was under $500,000. Yeah, it was, but, I, I did notice that cause you had a, an amount in there of like, I think $510,000 or something like that. Yeah. Um, so she was an incredible, she was an incredible, incredible person. And, um, and had a great family. She she had never been married and did not have any of her own kids. So um, you know, she was just a kind of giving giving of herself to lots of other people um, locally and internationally. So yeah, well, I mean, that's probably a good place to start off with because you know, uh, you know, Dan, you're. Uh, uh, one of a few defense lawyers have come on. So, you know, we're using this time to learn all of your, uh, all of your secrets and all of your, uh, um, uh, tricks that you try to play. Um, no, but, um, so when you're, when you're faced with a plaintiff who's, uh, you know, by all accounts is, is, uh, just a really good person. Um, talk about how you, how you start, um, you know, when you're going to try that case, you know, that, um, when you when you've got a, a plaintiff on the other side who's very likable, that that can go a long way uh, with the jury. Um, so how do you how do you start addressing that as far as your trial strategy? Yeah, so you know it starts in jury it starts in jury selection. Um, I think in this particular case also because it's a wrongful death case, you know you have to be. And, and not that I'm impolite in litigation, but sometimes, you know, you're adversarial to the other side and, and to plaintiffs. But you have to be very careful in a case like this that you're being extremely respectful of the plaintiff, the plaintiff's family, the, the folks that are there, not only when the jury's in the box, but really the entire time you're at the courthouse. I just think you have to have a mindset that, you know, this is no matter what anybody said, and I've said this multiple times in the trial. I mean, this was a tragedy, no question. And it's an incredible person who, and, and like some of your clients who I've also met in litigation, you know, some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet in your life are plaintiffs in lawsuits involving medical malpractice or product liability. They have had, you know, incredible tragedies happen and have 
live through them. And, um, you know, you just have to admire people like that. And, yeah. and, you know, I mean, Lisa was, she was a one of a kind, you know, decedent in, in this case. So to answer your question, it really, it starts a jury selection. I think you have to ask questions to prepare the jury and to find out who is going to really have a difficult time being involved in this trial because of the nature of the damages. So, I mean, it's not just, well, hey, who else volunteers their time? They might, you know, align themselves more with Lisa. It would be hard for anybody not to align themselves with Lisa and love Lisa. Um, It's, well, who's going to be just so impacted by that that you're not going to be able to sort out what we're trying to do in the trial, which is figure out whether somebody's responsible and if so, who it is. Um, So it starts then. um, And, you know, I just always try to keep the focus on, you know, that we're not, we're not talking, we're not, we never tried to diminish Lisa. We never suggested, and, and this was part of the case before trial, one of the defendants who settled out suggested that Lisa really did know that she had a blood clot and was just, um, you know, not going, didn't want to get it treated or was delaying the treatment herself. Um, we never took that position in the case. We certainly didn't ever suggest it at trial that, you know, our position was, you know, we believed, we believed her and her sister. She never knew if she'd been told she had a blood clot in her leg, she's a responsible person. She would have gotten care and treatment for it. She would have talked to her sister about it. She talked to every day. You know, we didn't ever make the case that she had any blame in any of this. And so, I mean, I think that was a necessary, I mean, I think it's an obvious strategy, but also a necessary strategy in a case like this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it's, it's equivalent to when the, uh, you know, we, on either side, you know, when you go to a trial, you've got facts that are good for you and facts that are not so good for you. And it's, I think it's the equivalent of, you know, when we know we've got bad facts, you know, instead of trying to hide those facts or, you know, you you know, brush them under the rug. I mean, we, we hit it straight on. I mean, we talk to the jury about it. We bring it out in jury selection and, uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, try and and get the jury to, you know, first of all, understand that, you know, sometimes, you know, whatever the bad fact might be uh, for your side that, um, you know, that it's not so bad or that, um, you know, there's a reason for it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, that makes uh, a lot of sense. I I was going to add, so it it sounded to me, uh, Dan, like your defense in this case was mainly around the fact that your, your client, um, Dr. Joshi, who's the radiologist, Basically, you know, basically what he is doing is is reading the ultrasound when it comes in at the hospital and then reports it back so that it can go, you know, back to the treating physician who's Dr. Mundy at uh, at Village Podiatry. And and in in this case, because this was a a um, a a, um, you know, something that was a, a critical result, something that was uh, could be potentially dangerous. Um, the technologist had actually already called Village Podiatry Center, according to the medical records, um, and left a message with Willie, who turned out to be a, um, a, a I can't remember, was it a medical assistant or something like that? Um, a medical assistant, yeah, a non-licensed medical provider, but somebody who's a medical assistant who might take vital signs, certainly answers the phone, um, 
does a lot of different jobs around the podiatry office. Right. And I, and, and so, so, I mean, you know, as far as whether or not the message was getting back to Lisa about her having her a blood clot, that that's essentially something that you leave with the treating physician, uh, in, in, in village podiatry. Um, and, uh, and, and then I, I did see, the, from what I could tell from the timeline, sort of, it sounded like not only did, um, you know, there was this report from the technologist back to village podiatry, but then there was um, the, the technologist, there was evidence that she had told Miss Calhoun to stay there yeah. uh, until she had talked to uh, her doctor. And then she uh, saw her on the phone with, with, I think someone who she believed was the doctor and maybe, and it may have turned out to be, um, the, uh, the village podiatry center. Um, and, and then I, I think at that point, that's where there's a question of what she might've been told. And I think from the plaintiff standpoint, she was, they, they believe she wasn't told, you know, what the results were in that she, she just needed to go home and wait for further instruction. And that's right. Yeah. Okay. And, and and so from from your standpoint, I mean, your your doctor had basically done his job, and it and he's not the one who is going to be directly communicating with the patient. Is is what it sounded like. Yeah. So so in the paradigm that the plaintiffs were trying to create at trial was which which y'all know, and I think many of your listeners may know, is that when a radiologist interprets a study and there's a critical life-threatening condition seen on that study, there are guidelines and standard of care for direct communication from the radiologist to the ordering physician. So it's such a, it's, it, in a critical finding, we don't, or medic, medical um, personnel don't rely on the report going through whatever channel to get to the ordering physician. They do want a direct phone call. Um, that didn't happen in this case. And the reason why it didn't happen is because um, the way it was set up for this type of study, Dr. Monday sends Lisa over to the hospital. They do this ultrasound very quickly. Um, the technologist is the one doing it. And basically, from the technologist's perspective, there's only one thing they're looking for, and that's a blood clot. And the technologists are trained to see the blood clot because they have to then create the images that go to the radiologist and they only create images that show blood clot um, if it's there. So they're trained to do that. So to expedite things, because sometimes radiologists may not look at these images for hours later, to expedite things, they had a system where the technologist would call the ordering physician and tell them the result of the, of the ultrasound. And they're supposed to document that. And that's what happened in this case with Chanel Smith. She saw the clot. She said, testified she called Dr. Monday's office. She spoke to Willie. Um, then she created this flow sheet that showed where the clot was. And she documented on there that she spoke to Dr. Willie in Dr. Monday, spoke to Willie in Dr. Monday's office. So when Dr. Joshi then gets the images that afternoon, he has the benefit of knowing that Chanel Smith has already reported this to Willie. Now, the allegation is, and it was, and it had some traction with the jury, was, well, you know, it's a critical life-threatening finding. Who's Willie? Shouldn't you, Dr. Joshi, confirm that there had been that communication 
and that it really was with Dr. Monday and not some person who may or may not know what to do with that information. Um, and so um, we went, we had to explain that and said, well, it was, it was reasonable for Dr. Joshi to believe that communication had taken place. And then we took the additional step of proving, as you pointed out, Steve, that there actually, that Miss Smith, Chanel Smith, held Miss Lisa, Miss Calhoun at the facility until there had been some discussion with Dr. Monday's office. And that there was evidence that Dr. Monday spoke to, uh, not Dr. Monday, but Dr. Monday's office had spoke to Lisa. And we tracked down the cell phone records, which showed that Lisa had gotten a call from Dr. Monday's office um, after the ultrasound and after Chanel had supposedly called their office. And it was an approximately two-minute phone call. And so what we argued is the communication loop had been closed. We now had proven that the results were called to Dr. Monday's office and that they acknowledged them and then had spoken to Lisa about it. You know, what was said to Lisa, we don't know. No one um, in Dr. Monday's office, you know, had any recollection of that call or who made it. Um, but based on what we learned later, we think and, and the subsequent hospital records when Lisa presented with chest pain and she told everybody what happened, um, she was told to go home and she'd get further instructions. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz, or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. The settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta. Atlanta.com, legal technology services, uh, give them a try. Did you get a sense of when you were working up the case or, or maybe even talking to this jury, did you, because for me reading, reading about this case, when you sent it to me, I was thinking, okay, well, 
you know, and personal experience and, and everything else. And I'm not sure how much of it comes from just doing the work that we do. I feel like I don't have a big expectation of radiologists telling patients, telling patients anything or much of a relationship with the radiologist, right? I'm sort of always thinking of the doctor who's requested it or whatever, but I'm wondering, I don't know how much of that comes from us knowing how things work, looking at case after case. Did you get a sense of what, you know, sort of the average person's expectation was of what a radiologist would be responsible for in this scenario? Yeah, definitely. That, and that's a very, that's a very um, profound um, question about this because we, we in jury selection asked everybody about that. I mean, not for the exact reason you're talking about, has, have any of you ever gotten results of a study from a radiologist who typically gives you those results? You know, isn't it your primary care doctor or the doctor that you've seen in the office who says, we're going to get this x-ray and aren't they the ones who tell you what the results are? And, and so I can't remember all the specific questions, but we spent probably 20 minutes in jury selection just on all of those topics, confirming that it had been nobody's experience that a radiologist calls the patient. Um, and, and although they made that allegation, I really don't think that was not the allegation that worried us. It was that um, he, Dr. Joshi needed to make sure that the ordering physician knew the results, not the patient, but the ordering physician. Um, and they kept emphasizing the patient. And, and it's terrible that she didn't get the results. I mean, it's it's really, you know, part of the sad part of the case. Um you know, one of the other jury selection questions that we asked in this case was, you know, have, has anybody ever been blamed for something that wasn't their fault? And, is it, and has anybody ever really been blamed for something very, very serious at work or in their personal life that wasn't their fault? You know, how did, how did you feel about that? How did it make you feel? And that really was our theme in the case. Um, the, the other thing that I don't know if you guys, you, you have some materials, but the testimony, the testimony of Dr. Monday at trial. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah, then the testimony um, that she gave in her deposition. It was uh, remarkable. I was going to ask you, did that, because uh, I did notice, you know, in your opening, you you basically had, you know, what you expected Dr. Monday to testify to. And then, you know, in your closing, I noticed, you know, you had, you know, here's what she testified to during deposition. And then here's what she testified to at trial. Um, did, was, did that catch you by surprise that she uh, had changed some of her uh, key testimony? Yeah, it, it really did. And, um, and I have to give credit to my, I tried this with my partner, Michael Frankson. And, and like you guys, when we try cases, we end up, we split pretty much everything 50, 50. And so he, he did the cross-examination of Dr. Monday. And he, he was at her deposition um, in years before also. And, 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 he, and he, in a very, very respectful and polite way, brought it all out. But it was a, it was a complete 180 on some very key points. Because she essentially said in her deposition, I suspected it was DBT, which is why I sent her over for an ultrasound. And that was included in her notes. Um, and, you know, I... I I think that we might have gotten the result called back to us through Willie. If Willie did get the call, then he knew what to do. Um, and then she thought that it had been communicated to Lisa as, as well. 
Um, and so that was kind of the gist of it from her perspective. At trial, her testimony was, I don't know anything about DVTs. Um, I sent her over to be worked up at the hospital and for them to determine DVT care and treatment. And they use phrases like I gave, I turned the car over to Dr. Joshi. He was going to be driving it. Uh, I passed the baton to Dr. Joshi so that he then would take over the care and treatment. And, and this was a, this was an interesting fact in this case too. She never, Dr. Monday in her office, they never had a faxed copy of the report. So the report never was in their medical records. And so she said, you know, Dr. Joshi, and she said this on the stand, which was never in her deposition. He let me down. He had a critical result. He never called me. He didn't even send me the report. Um, he violated the standard of care every time that I've ever had an abnormal result. I've always gotten a phone call and a fax. I didn't get either one, you know, and, and all of that. So, um, it was a pretty, it was a pretty dramatic change. Um, and of course she had settled out beforehand and, you know, the judge allowed everyone to get into the evidence that she had been a defendant at one time and she had, the, the phrase was resolved her differences. Right. And so, you know, couldn't say settlement, no one, neither side could say settlement, but resolved her differences. And so, you know, the jury was aware that, that she had been a defendant in the case, but, um, the, the problematic things, in addition to just the difference in testimony, the other big problem for Dr. Monday was, so Lisa had the ultrasound on a Thursday and the pulmonary embolism was where she came to the emergency rooms on the following Tuesday. So we know from her electronic medical records that Dr. Monday on Sunday, um, had gone in and, and signed the record when she saw her the day she sent her for an ultrasound. So she knew, number one, that she had diagnosed her as a D, with a DVT, that she had sent her over for an ultrasound on Thursday. Um, and, she, and she knew that there wasn't an ultrasound, if you believe her, there wasn't an ultrasound report in her chart at that point in time. And she didn't do anything about it um, at that point. So it's hard to know exactly, you know, with, I know you guys saw the verdict form. So the verdict form had first just, you know, we either find for the plaintiff or find um, for Dr. Joshi. And then if, if they found for the plaintiff, then there was a portion among the settling defendants. And so one of the, one of the, um, you know, questions was, you know, would they get to Dr. Monday's, fault if they found against Dr. Joshi and to what percentage they would attribute it to her. Cause I don't think they would have attributed any other negligence to anybody else in the case. Yeah, Dan, I'm wondering, so we talk a lot about on the, on this show from the plaintiff side about what happens when you've got somebody who settles out before the trial, then you've got that empty chair and, and ways to handle that, you know, and one, one of the ways is to kind of, you know, get as close as you can to sort of saying that that, you know, that party that's not here anymore has sort of accepted responsibility and that, that, you know, the, the party who's still in the case hasn't, and, and they're just blaming everyone else. And so I'm wondering how you approach that from your side of things. So that, that's the approach I've seen the most when, when you, you know, when you know, they're going to be on the verdict form, I mean, it's always a little 
you never always know who's going to be on the verdict form, just depending on how the evidence comes in and your judge and, and the rulings on that. But if you know they're going to be on the verdict form, that's definitely the approach. This trial is not about the other people who are involved. You can consider their fault um, only if you find against the defendant. But that's that's for your consideration later. Um, so in this particular case, we always stay focused on just the defense of the defendant. We're not trying to deflect blame. We're, we're trying to make sure the jury understands which of these people who were involved in taking care of Lisa had what responsibilities and duties and why we, there are a lot of other responsibilities and there were a lot of other duties in the case, but here's what ours were and, and here's why we met them. But you're still going to hear a lot of other evidence about some other people who were involved in her care and treatment. But I always, I always say in closing, you, know, you only get to that if you found for the plaintiff initially. So you've got to first find standard care was violated and it caused injuries in this case by Dr. Joshi in this case, or by the defendant on trial. It's only if you do that, that then you get to the next question of dividing it up. And, and I think there you can probably get different opinions on that approach to it. I worry about if we don't kind of explain it in that step-by-step -step process, that it's an avenue for a compromise verdict where you can't, you know, you get to say, well, I don't know. It seems like every lot of people were involved in this and a lot of people had, you know, could have changed the outcome here. Yeah. The defendant on trial is not the most culpable, but let's, let's all agree on some division of this um, and we can have a unanimous verdict. Um, and so there's, there's some fear on the defense side that that's, that's how it can play out because I think a portion that can lead to some compromise verdicts when, when you have um, jurors that might otherwise hang up on liability for one defendant, but might be able to unanimously agree on diminished responsibility. So um, we, we just, we just worry about that. But I think, I think in any case, you know, as you guys know, and you guys practice, Honesty and credibility and how you present your case is so important. And you don't want to be, you don't want to have the fact that you settled with some earlier folks who are not at trial um, exploited on you, you know, or, or make it seem like you hid that from the jury somehow right. or trying to hide it from the jury. So, I mean, as above board as you can be about it, I think is, is the key, but I mean, you know, I haven't had anybody push for or any judge say that you can get into the details of the settlement you can get in amounts or anything like that, which I think would be problematic. All right. Um, yeah. I do like that approach though. I, I felt like your PowerPoint that you sent us, um, I can't remember which one it was, but I, I do think that that approach has to be effective where part of it, what it seems like you're doing is really just, it feels objective that you're just telling the jury, this is what your job is. And these are what the steps are. This is what to expect in the trial. And this is when you'll do what, you know, I, I feel like it has to be um, a good strategy to sort of just be this source of what feels like objective education or information for them. It's um, as you guys may not perceive as much, um, particularly in this kind of case, though, it, it's very it's very stressful and for the for the remaining defendant in this situation. You know, you have this terrible tragedy. Objectively, it shouldn't have gone down. 
right? You don't get an ultrasound on a Thursday that shows a DVT and die of a pulmonary embolism the following Tuesday. That's just, that's not supposed to happen. It, it, it's a mistake is made somewhere along the line and everybody else is out. Everybody else is settled and you're left, you know, facing a DeKalb County jury who's only going to consider your fault initially at least. And then, and then later others. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, Lisa obviously is an incredible person, but the stress and strain it puts on a defendant knowing that you're being blamed for the loss of that kind of life. And not all life is obviously valuable and all injuries are important, but the worse it is, you know, the more of a tragedy it is, the worse it is on the defendant too. And it just becomes, it's, it's really very difficult. Um, and so there's a lot of reluctance, I think, on defendants to be the last person in a case, even though they may only have a small um, segment of the liability. Um, and just yeah. the ability for them to feel like they can make their case and have the jury sort all that out instead of just kind of throwing them out with the bathwater. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that'd be terrifying. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, it's, it's funny you, you mentioned that, Dan, because I, I specifically remember a case that, that, that you and I tried against each other where you weren't the only defendant and you were there with some other defendants. And uh, they, they at least, the, I'll just say that the other defendants didn't seem to be taking the case as, as seriously as yours, uh, as your client was. And I remember you coming up to me during the trial and saying, you know, I, I, I can't move far enough away from, you know, <laughs> my, my co-defendants because, they, you know, the way they're acting during this trial, you know. And uh, See, I, that, I was imagine, the, that was in the early days of cell phones. And, yeah. <laughs> and everybody at the table except for um, my client and I were texting the whole yep. trial. And that was just, you know, I mean, now people... Now I think it's pretty customary that everybody has a laptop on their right. council table, and and you know whether you're surfing the internet or not, you know people just come to expect it. But I mean, it was really distracting to see the you know yeah. the phone and all that stuff the whole time. And you're and you're right, there were there were strange expressions of. I mean, that was a terribly tragic case. Yes, too. Yeah, yeah. And and um, there were just strange expressions of emotion during that trial by our co-defendants. But and, yeah. I, and I, you know, I think it made it, I think it made a difference even in to our case. Um and to the to the amount of the verdict. I mean you guys did a great job, of course, and um got a really good verdict in that case. Um I wish we had not been a part of it, but I think it might have been a little a little bit of guilt by association. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean there was definitely definitely some of that going uh going on. Yeah, I mean that has to be tough to sort of to make to sort of establish your own sort of identity to the jury when you have to sit at the same table right next to each other and and you know you just look it looks like a line down the middle and plaintiffs on one side and defendants on the other side. So that has to be tough. I mean, at least when you're the plaintiffs, I mean sometimes you've got you've got plaintiffs with different lawyers and stuff, but I think it has to be harder on the defense side. It can it definitely can be. It definitely can be. On the um, on the apportionment issue in the verdict form and, and that whole issue, I did I did remember. So we had we had two questions when the jury was deliberating. So we started we started the trial Monday, we finished closings, you know, in the early Friday afternoon corridor. Um, and by later mid-Friday afternoon, um, 
we did get a couple questions and I'll, I re, I'll read these to you just because I saved them uh, because uh, they're, they're on this point, but you, you so, know, they're good. If, if, if yeah. you save the jury questions. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I always take pictures of the jury questions so I can find them on my phone. Right. But so it's two questions are on the same. They're on the same um, piece of paper. I, I wish I could show them to the listeners because the eyes have like, a little like circle dot. It's not just a dot. It's like a big circle. Um, So if we, the jury side with the plaintiff and award damages, does non-defendants have to pay percentage that we designate to them? That was question number one. Question number two was um, if we, the jury side with Dr. Joshi, Will he have to pay the full amount we award the plaintiffs or just the percentage of fault we find for him? So, yeah. And that, those are on the same the same piece of paper? Yeah. So, Interesting. So, you know, mild heart attack. Right. Oh, yeah. In the, in the break room, you know. And then so we, we, we began to talk about settling the case at that point, obviously. Um, the judge brought the jury in before we did that. And said, you know, you have to, I can't, I can't answer those questions for you. You have to rely on the charge and the evidence to do that. Um, and so we were trying to, you know, talking about what to do and going back and forth on stuff. Well, you know, the jury stayed out for like another couple hours and that Friday. And so it really kind of, it really changed our perspective about it then from, oh, well, they've already found against us. Yeah. And now they're just trying to figure out who's going to have to pay with the percentage stuff to, you know, I I don't think they've found against us now uh, or they would have come back right away. That was our thinking at the time. So they came back and said they were done there. They wanted to be done that Friday. And then they came back on Monday and, and then had a verdict like around lunchtime. Um, but you know, this, you know, the jury questions are always, oh. it's hard to interpret them. They just cause a lot of additional stress and, um, they're the worst. I, I'm interested to hear how you, how the defense views this. Cause I, I, I'm not a fan of the jury getting the case on a Friday and then going home over the weekend and then coming back and deliberating on a Monday. I just, I feel like too many things can change too many opportunities for them to, you know, talk to their family and, you know, and all of a sudden they're, you know, they, they're not feeling as strong as they were. I, I, I'm wondering how does, how, how, from the defense perspective, how do you all, um, how, how do you all view that? So, so the Friday, so there's two parts to that. So the, the Friday afternoon part, you know, is I think out of a hundred cases, if you give jurors, the case on a Friday afternoon, the likelihood of a defense verdict is better than if they get it on a Friday morning or, right. you know, but I mean, that's, that's mostly anecdotal. There's no study. There's no, it's very soft science, no real, no, nothing really supports it. But I think, I think in general, and you guys would agree that, you know, you don't want the jury getting the case on late Friday, and especially if they've been told it's a one week trial, you right. know, if they've told it's a two week trial, and you finished it in a week, that's a little different. But yeah. if they said, you know, we're going to get the case to you on Friday and they get it Friday at 2.30, you know, um, I think we're all getting a little antsy by about 5 o'clock, you know, waiting for the knock. Um, and so I think that's I think that's better for defendants and plaintiffs. Um, yeah, I, I worry about the weekend, too. 
Um, I, I just think a lot of stuff can happen. You're never going to find out about it. Right. Um, you know, as you guys know, no juror is going to come back on Monday and say, you know, I've been talking about this case with my family all right. weekend and I've right. changed my mind. I mean, they just kind of come back and say, I've been thinking about it. And now I think this and that. So I think that, I think that cuts both ways. I think I can think of cases that have gone where I felt good on Friday that went against us Monday and, and the other way around too. So yeah, I don't really like. I don't really like it, Steve. I mean, all things being equal, I'd rather have him come back on Saturday. Right. And, or, and yeah, I did have a judge uh, on a Friday. He kept him till midnight on Friday, and they got the case done. And uh, you know, and I was, you know, as as much as I hated hanging out at the courthouse till midnight on a Friday, I was glad that we got it done and the jury could go home. After, you know, afterwards. Yeah, I mean, and that's another thing too. And you give the, the jury the case on Friday, and some judges, you know, will say. Well, hey, you know, let's. I'll check back in with you around five and see how you're doing. Some judges won't say anything. Yeah, and just you know, as long as they're making progress, and until they say something, we'll just let them go. And you know, I don't know which one of those is necessarily necessarily better either. Um, yeah, you know, I, th- I think I think if the juror if the jurors are making progress, they should stay. Um, when they say they're you know too tired or can't keep going then, you know, we have to let him go. But yeah. I would be in favor of bringing him back. I mean, the problem with bringing back Saturday is obviously just core personnel and security and all that kind of, that, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah. I like yeah, a I good, agree. I like a good Friday afternoon charge conference. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wrap up so, a little early. So you can close on Monday morning. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> lots of time. Yeah. Lots of time to work with the charges, make some boards. I mean, for lawyers, that's definitely easier. I mean, I it gives you the weekend to, you know, sort of get things, uh, you know, pulled together, you know. <laughs> that, that's that's very true. I mean, if you know, if you know you've got the weekend to get, um, you know, your, your closing together, you know, it makes for a, it makes for a more fun Friday night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. exactly. exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure though, Steve. I mean, you probably give it, you probably give it some closings with little prep that are just oh. as good as closings where you have a whole weekend to <laughs> so, compose and, yeah. uh, you know, drill down. I mean, you know, by the time you're closing the case, I mean, you, you, if you don't know the case by that point, then, uh, then, uh, you know, you shouldn't be in the courtroom, but, uh, yeah, you're right. So there's been plenty of times when, you know, it's late in the day and judge is like, no, we're closing the case today. Get up, you know, start talking, Mr. Lowry. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Man. Um, well, you know, I wanted to talk to you about, um, going back a a little bit. Um, first of all, I guess I wanted to ask you, when you're, and this is maybe a little different since you're dealing with in a wrongful death case where the, where the, you know, the client is not there. So I guess expect this to, to not just this case, but when you're cross-examining a, a plaintiff, um, you know, or, or, you know, a plaintiff's family who, you know, is, is likable, like in this case, I mean, first of all, I guess I'm, I'm just wondering how much, uh, how much are you cross-examining them? How, you know, what's your, your tact on it. And, um, and then just as a little side note, I was going to ask you in, in this case, were you using the plaintiff's complaint to cross-examine? Cause that's always an issue with us on, uh, you know, whether or not we need to amend the complaint or, you know, the pretrial order and stuff like that before trial. But, um, to talk about yeah, that. So, um, it, it, I, I usually, uh, in, in cases like this, there's not a lot of cross of the plaintiff or the, the plaintiff's, who happened to be the sister of Lisa 
and and the family members. It, so there was there wasn't a lot of cross examination of them. I mean, anything that would be asked was was very respectful and um, but pretty short. Um, it, it's different if the if the plaintiff was involved. I mean, the plaintiff is the patient and has recollection of the discussions and care and treatment and, and, and those kind of things. And I think you get into much more of a questioning of the facts, confirming things as you do it. Um, I, it would, it would be an unusual, it'd be an unusual case where I would cross examine with the complaint for the most, for the most part. Um, I don't do that. Um, we tend to just ask about the complaint in the deposition and then, you know, we'd use it out of the deposition really. So I, I don't use the complaint to cross examine um, very often. It's, uh, it, it's the main thing that I think is different in how I practice now from how I used to practice is that now I spend more time challenging and confronting damages in even cases where I feel like we have a really good liability defense or a really good liability and causation defense that I'll still want to talk to the jury about damages, talk to about the amount of damages, what would be a reasonable amount if you got there. And, and so that lends itself to more questioning of plaintiffs. Um, I don't think it really applies in wrongful death cases, but I think I think what we've, we have seen in Georgia over the last several years is an increase in verdicts, um, is, a, is the severity of verdicts or the, the dollar amount being awarded um, in to plaintiffs who prevail in civil cases is much higher than it used to be. And I think part of that, um, I think most of that is because of plaintiffs who are still alive, not wrongful death cases, because I don't think the trend of higher verdicts is applies to wrongful death cases in the same way it does to people who are injured and come to court and the jury sees them and sees their limitations and knows what they can and can't do and hears from them in some way, or hears from the parents of a child in that way. I think like in all the big verdict cases that you've looked at and talked about and we've seen in Georgia, they're, they're for the most part, um, people who are still alive. And so um, I think in those cases, you have to talk now. And I used to not believe this because I was not trained to ever talk about damages if you had a good liability defense. But I've changed on that now, and I think I think it's important. I think it adds credibility to the defense. Um, I think it it is an acknowledgement of the defendants that there has been some harm to the plaintiff. I think that humanizes the defense side. There's a lot of reasons to do it, um, and and I've changed over the years in doing that, and and we did that in, in this case. So, Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah. I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. 
Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, digital law marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So how do you uh, how do you approach the damages and, and talking about that with the jury? And then I guess it, it, as part of that question, do you suggest what you believe would be a fair amount for this case? Yeah. So so that that's an extremely controversial topic yeah. among defense lawyers. Um, so not not so much talking about damages because you can always talk about damages, but to to suggest a number to the jury from the defendant's side is something that we, I mean, we debate on a weekly basis. And so it has to be, number one, it has to be very well thought through. Um, you have to base it on something legitimate in the case. So you have to be able to say, um, you know, I think if you get to the issue of damages, we don't think you should, but if you do, you know, here's some things that you need to consider um, and again, I, I think it's, I think a wrongful death case doesn't really apply to you, but when you yeah. talk about somebody who, I'll give you an example, somebody who's had an above the knee amputation, who's a young person. Um, what, what is, what is at the core of that case, their damages are really the inability to do things that they can't, that they could do before. I mean, is there pain and suffering? Sure. Um, is there disfigurement? Sure. But and then those, I think, in that type of case have some value, but they're not going to be blockbuster awards. What really does have the awards is when the jury hears the kinds of things that the person can't do anymore that they love to do, whether it's yeah. ballet or running or what, whatever the case may be. So if you if you can recognize that in that kind of case and then develop a, some damages evidence, either through the plaintiffs, your y'all's witnesses, or through our own witnesses, that here's what we can do to allow this injured person to do what they love to do before. And here's how much it will cost. And that is something that you can wrap your arms around in awarding damages in this case. And, it, and it's, it's a lesser number than what typically the plaintiff's life care plan or, or the plaintiff's damages experts are doing. But then you use that to then suggest, you know, if you get to damages in this case and this above the knee amputation, you know, getting this person back to what they're able to do, recognizing that we can't bring their leg back, that a more reasonable number is not $20 million, a more reasonable number is $2 million or something lower. And so 
as you guys know, because you're you, and the plaintiff's bar deserves a lot of credit for um, learning learning your trade, honing your skills, sharpening sharpening your uh, weapons, and and practicing your skills. That you guys know that there there are a lot of techniques that like anchoring with a number that yeah. work very well with juries. And we're, we've always been a little bit behind the eight ball in catching up to these techniques and learning from our mistakes in, in doing this. So, you know, we're trying to do that. But, you know, if you're in, in Lisa's case, the number was $30 million. Every time any every juror got questioned about, you know, and it's always, if the evidence supports it, could you award $30 million? And of course, the phrase, if the evidence supports it, is a hook for every juror. Right. And, and even the most staunch uh, <clears throat> pro-defense juror is still going to say, yeah, well, I'll listen to the evidence. And if the evidence is there, sure, $30 million. What, what's really happening is $30 million is just uh, you know, being repeated over and over again. And yeah. so if, if there's no discussion by us about another number, and the jury gets into deliberations, and they may say, all right, well, $30 million is the number. The defense didn't even say anything about it. So, you know, if we're going to compromise, let's give, you know, some lower number that's still pretty going to be pretty close to $30 million. Right, right. Um, right. And, and, and I, just don't, I just think that's, that's hard. I, I don't know how you get around that unless you're talking about numbers, too, at some point in the trial. Um, I know, I believe at least, and, and I think I know that um, you can't wait. You can't wait till closing to do it. So if I don't say anything about numbers until closing, then the message is, "Wow, this trial has gone really bad." Now I'm yeah. talking numbers. <laughs> now, I didn't say anything about damages, but now I've got to talk about numbers. Boy, this is this has gone bad. Um, so if you're going to do it. You do it in jury selection and you start, you know, you do it in the same way you guys do. You, you just bring it up and and um, and talk about it then. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I mean, anchoring is certainly, you know, an effective technique. But, but at the same time, I also feel, you know, if I'm going to ask the jury for a significant number at the end, then I, I better not be mentioning it for the first time in closing because then they're going to it's going to just feel like I just pulled it out of thin air. Um, you know, so, you know, you got to sort of, you know, tell the jury, you know, this is what we're thinking. This is where we're coming from. And, and this, you know, this is who this person was and why we're thinking it. But Dan, uh, that's funny. I never really thought about that, that if you, if you don't bring up numbers until you're closed, that the jury could think it's because you think you're getting beat. I never, I, that makes yeah. sense, but I never really thought about that. And I think I've definitely been in cases where that has happened, where, where the defense has not addressed numbers till close. Yeah. Yeah, I just think, and some jurors, I mean, you know, who knows for sure, but I just think that if if you fought the case, if you, you started out in jury selection, fighting the case on liability, and then you fought the case on liability all the way through, and you get to, you get to closing, and then for the first time, you're talking about, because you might have talked about damages before, but the first time you're really talking about an award of damages in dollars there, it, I just think some jurors are going to think, Wow, you know he th he knows or she knows the case went as bad as I thought it went. You know? <laughs> right, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now he's trying. Now he's trying to get you know get us to shortchange the plaintiff. Uh, right, yeah. right. At the last minute. So you know, I mean, I think, I, but I think that's really challenging. And I think it's 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 something that I think a lot of defense lawyers, including me, have a hard time doing at, at just the outset of a case 
when you when you feel like you're going to win the case on liability, most right. likely, that then but, you're talking about numbers and and that just you know and the, you you open yourself up to the argument. Well, you know, we didn't do anything wrong, but if we did, we didn't cause anything. And if we caused if we caused something, don't award any damages. But if mm-hmm. you do award damages, don't award as much as they're asking for. Right, right. So exactly. That kind of you know, which is yeah. what it sounds like sometimes. But there's ways to argue it and present it that. Are different than that, and I do think jurors respect you for doing it. I don't think there's a downside, even in a good liability case, from talking about it. But you got to you got the right number. I agree. I mean, you know, and it goes back to, you know, what you were saying about, uh, you know, honesty and credibility. You know, if, if you just tell the jury, look, you know, damages is is an element and something that the plaintiffs are asking for. So, you know, we're going to talk about it. Uh, and that's why we're talking about it. Not that we think we're going to lose the case. Um, you know, that, that, um, you know, I think, I think juries appreciate that. I mean, the more you're straightforward with them about where you're coming from, uh, yeah, you know, the better off you are, um, you know, and, and I, I did, I was going to say that, you know, uh, the way you sort of structured your opening and your closing, you know, like the starting out with, and I think I, I actually think I remember this from the case we tried where, you know, you start with, you know, this is what, what the case is about. And this is what the case, and it's not about, you know, these things and, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and, and in this case you had, you know, Dr. Joshi made the right diagnosis. He made the right reading and nobody was claiming that he had done anything different, you know? So, um, you know, and, and that this case is really about communication from a treating physician to their own patient. You know, which I think really, uh, you know, frames the case from your perspective um, well. Um, so, uh, you know, their, it, expert, their expert, Steve, had a similar. So he got sent the case and he spent three hours reviewing it initially. And he looked at the images and all that stuff. And, and he saw the notation from the technologist that she called Willie and Dr. Monday, his office, and so he said, so he initially, his initial impression of the case was, well, this isn't a case. <laughs> they made the right diagnosis. And then, and then the attorneys told him, no, 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 she, she died of a pulmonary embolism five days later. They didn't do any follow-up. And then he's like, oh, well, yeah, that shouldn't have happened. And so his initial read of the case was this went according to plan. And certainly, you know, it was only later when he found out Somehow the communication didn't happen the way it should so have. I saw that in your opening in and your closing. And I was wondering, I mean, you know, if if I had an expert tell me that uh, I'm probably not, you know, uh, thank you very much for your time. Tell me what I owe you. I'm going to I'm going to move on. I mean, so why did they bring that expert to trial, I guess? So he's a very he's a well he's a very well known. Um, he wrote the book on um, one of the radio. I think it's gastrointestinal radiology or maybe vascular radiology, but he, he was an incredibly well-respected, well-published guy. <clears throat> and he kind of came down to, he said, well, yeah, he agreed with all that, but then, you know, he, he said that there has to be good communication to, to the point. It was all about the communication. Yeah. So, and, you know, I just couldn't believe that there hadn't been this communication. And then he spread the blame out among everybody who was involved but did feel like Dr. Joshi, because it was a critical finding, should have ensured that there had been the commu- that the communication had taken place. And so again, and, and there's some traction in that argument. There, yeah. there, there yeah. was. But you're right. That was a you know the the point about him doing his job was really 
supported by the initial review of the plaintiff's own expert. I, I have sort of a different question, Steve. So if your question was on that topic, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt you. No, go ahead. <laughs> well, no, I just was going to, did you get to talk to the jury and find out what they thought happened or if, if they thought something happened in terms of what was communicated or not communicated? Yeah. So, so we did get to talk to them. Um, most of them for sure, you know, at least eight, eight to 10 of them. And they said they felt like Dr. Joshi did his job. Um, they felt like Dr. Monday dropped the ball. They didn't know exactly how it didn't help that she changed her testimony. They didn't believe her, but they felt like it was within her responsibility. Um, they, they had some discussion about whether, you know, Dr. Joshi should get some percentage of blame, but they came back to, you know, if he didn't do anything wrong, he shouldn't get any. They definitely didn't think that Lisa, um, was, was, uh, was at fault or knew anything about it. They, so they rejected that, the concept that she knew, um, which we didn't argue, but they said, you know, we didn't, we didn't think she had, she had been told and she should have been told by Dr. Money's office. Mm -hmm. um, and then they, they would have certainly awarded at least $30 million if they had found. Really? Yeah. Wow. 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 But, but you know, you, you would have to hear the evidence about who Lisa was and, I mean, she had, you know, a stepdaughter who came into, I mean, just, it, it was, you know, she was a remarkable, remarkable person. Yeah. So that was, you know, reflected in that. Yeah. I, I guess I just say, wow, because if they had decided, if they had done some sort of compromise because of just the loss of what a tremendous person she was, then, you know, whatever they did percentage wise, you're dealing with a big number. Right. Yeah. Right. Even a small, even a small, even 10% would have, right. been, would have been a large, would have yeah. been a large number. Um, and interestingly, that's, that would have been one way to argue it, right? I mean, you could have, and then this is, this would be a controversial thing too. You on the plaintiff side, you could have argued that you could have said, you know, this is a shared responsibility case. And you could have said, you know, that we're not saying it's a hundred percent on Dr. Joshi. We're saying it's in this range. 10, 25, whatever, come up with something like that. That's it. And, you know, and the rest is on these other people and you don't have to decide that it doesn't matter. You can put whatever you want to, but they've already, you know, accepted responsibility. Um, and that's not what this case. So you could have tried it that way, but, you know, based on what Dr. Monday said at trial and the passing of the baton and yeah. the complete turning over of all responsibility to Dr. Joshi, it became an all or nothing case. Yeah. Um, yeah. To some extent. And the jurors didn't, completely look at it that way. They still looked at it a little bit on the, on the percentage, but, but they did come back to that in the end. Um, I'm not sure if you had tried it. And again, it's all hindsight. It's not fair. And I'm not in any way being critical. Cause I think, I think it was tried very well by the plaintiffs. Um, it was, it was a, it was a tough case and they tried it really well, but I think, I think you might've had a hung jury, if you had tried it the other way again, in hindsight only, which, you know, of course we all, we all, yeah. we all have those trials that we, you, right. the trial we wanted to try the truck, the trial we tried and then the trial we wish we would have tried after that. Right. Yeah. right. Right. Exactly. Well, so I was going to ask, you know, cause I, I, you know, do think that, um, that communication or lack of communication is a theme in medical cases that you that uh, resonates with juries that that they you know because everybody's been in the hospital where you know they feel like 
you know, there people aren't paying attention to what's going on with them and they can't get a nurse's attention. So, and you, and I think that's been developing over the years. I think people have seen that more and more. And I, and I'll tell you, even in conversations I have with friends of mine who are doctors, I mean, they complain about the same stuff at their hospitals, you know, like, you know, I wish we, you know, had better systems for stuff like this. Um, so I, I do think that resonates. And, and so I think, you know, the one way to try this case is just what you said, but it, it, which is, you know, this is everybody here sort of dropped the ball and Dr. Joshi was part of that. Um, I, one thing I was wondering, I mean, obviously, you, you know, you, you uh, hit that very well, but um, had you focus group this case and had you heard any themes like that or, um, you know, any, no. any of those? Yeah. No, no, we, um, no, we didn't, we didn't focus group it. Um, you know, we, we probably, uh, we probably should focus through more of the cases that we take to trial. It's, we, we are pretty selective about what we do focus group, but, um, no, it's just, you know, other than just office banter prep focus group, which we do a lot of, but right. nothing, nothing official, nothing official. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, that's a, you know, those, those kinds of decisions about, you know, which way you're going to try a case and how you're going to do it. And, and, and in part, and the plaintiffs were really bound by what Dr. Monday's testimony was too. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, it would have been, it would have been tried, you know, that would have been inconsistent with what Dr. Monday was saying if they had taken that approach. Yeah. And so, you know, it, either way, it's got, it's going to have some deficiencies no matter which way they, they tended to argue it. Yeah, it's it's funny that that Dr. Mundy's testimony was what it was, especially with the deposition, because, you know, and I'll just say from the plaintiff's perspective, we we think in medical cases on your side, all you guys are talking to each other. You know what every other doctor is going to say, even if you haven't talked to them directly because, you know, their lawyer, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so it, it it is interesting that um, that that she came in and, 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 um, had changed her testimony pretty significantly, um, um, for trial. So, um, especially cause I think we sometimes have the perception that, okay, if they've resolved the case, they don't really have a, a reason to do that necessarily to blame somebody or all, else or put all the blame off themselves. Right. Cause they, they, they still have to work with these people. I mean, you know, and I don't know if Dr. Mundy stayed in town, but I mean, generally, you know, they're still working together. Yeah, well, yes, yes, and no on that. I mean, she's she's a podiatrist with an with a podiatry practice that's really not. Yeah, she sends patients to the hospital, but it's not like she's in the doctor's lounge at the hospital, or right. it wasn't, it's not like she's a um, a surgeon at the hospital who you know would would regularly use the radiology services of the hospital. Um, you know, Chanel Smith, who was a defendant, also. I mean, her testimony was much more in line with her deposition and was and was was much more supportive um, of, of Dr. Joshi. I mean, they, they were more aligned anyway because they, they were both saying the same thing about the communication. But, right. um, yeah, it was it was surprising because at that point, you know, what does Dr. Monday really have to lose? Right. Either way. And so, but I mean, the remarkable thing she came in and said was, you know, I referred this patient to Dr. Joshi. He totally let me down. He was supposed to diagnose and treat this DVT and he didn't do either of those things. And that's the only reason I sent her over to the hospital to be treated by him. Um, you know, which was not, I mean, she gave a, 
hundreds of pages of deposition testimony. There was nothing like that in her. Had, had Dr. Had Dr. Joshi uh, actually ever met, met Miss Calhoun? No, no, and he wouldn't. Yeah. yeah, which is, I mean, you know, makes it, you know, now, I mean, I, I, I see the argument of, well, you want to make sure that her treating doctor knows that. But I mean, the you know, the responsibility back to the patient and for what Dr. Mundy was saying that she had turned this patient over to a radiologist. That just seems very, I mean, it, and, and the radiologist never met, never met the patient. That, that seems very odd to me. Um, yeah, so. it's 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 it, it was. I don't know what was going on with that. It just kind of it was it was strange when it happened, and we you know we just kind of rolled with it. And like I said, Michael Brankson, my partner, did a great job, you know, cross examining her about it and pointing all this stuff out. So it was one of those one of those witnesses where the jury like writes everything down the whole mm -hmm. time they're testifying. All jurors are writing notes while Doctor Monday was testifying. You know. Um, and so it was that was the most dramatic part of the trial, I think. Yeah, I think so, it's also like an example that that you can have on both sides where where you have a witness who, for whatever reason, just wants to go a little just a little too far. They just yeah. they want to do too much and and it ends up being too much. <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's always one witness who does that. No matter In every trial, mm -hmm. there's always somebody who goes a little too far, and, yeah. you know, one way or the other. And. Um, you know, it's sometimes it doesn't matter, but you know, other times it's like the whole linchpin of the case. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I, I wanted to also ask you the, um, did the, did the plaintiffs call your client on cross in their case in chief? And, and how did you, if they did, did you get your client ready for that? I'm sure you did. And how did you go about getting him ready for that? So, so no, no not in this case. Um, it happens about, Half the time, I think, for the most part, uh, and most of the so I, I prepare for it every time until um, our clients you know get ready for it. I always think if it's going to happen, I have them prepare to do it immediately after openings. So right. I certainly have had the experience of giving an opening statement and having my client called immediately after that. To and to be challenged about things that I said in the opening, um, right off the bat, and so you know I, I've always kind of I've always prepared my clients for that. I think what I've changed about that is, I mean, again, it's very case specific and it changes from case to case. But the last case I tried in March, the defendant got called for cross examination as the very first witness, and instead of waiting to do my direct in the defendant's case. I just did it right away. Um, okay. And, and, so, and, the, and the judge let you do it because, you know, normally we, we, we'd make sure that was handled that, uh, you know, we're going to be able to cross and you have to wait till your case to do the direct, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I think now with the federal rules, yeah, I think there's more flexibility. The old Georgia rule, as long as the person was still, it was a defendant or an employee of the defendant at the time of trial, we couldn't ask. We couldn't do that even if we wanted to. Um, and most of the time, it's still, I think it's still better to wait and have your client testify after the plaintiff's experts have all testified. Because if you do the direct, if so if you call my client for cross and you do the direct right away, then your experts can come in and refute some of the stuff right then, um, which, which can be problematic in the wrong case. But in this particular case, um, the plaintiff's treated 
he only asked like seven or eight questions, but it was really damaging. And I just couldn't let it stay. Yeah. I had to do something about it. No, so, yeah. All right, we're just gonna, I'm just going to do the direct and, uh, you know, just, we're just going to go through everything right away. And so, yeah. yeah and so we yeah. did that. But, but that's, I mean, that's the only, from the plant's perspective, I mean, I think that's the only risk of calling a defendant for cross um, is, is that happening. And, you know, it always depends on how many different defendants there are. Right. And, you know, I, I can see selectively calling certain people or certain employees of defendants, hospital employees, for example, for cross and not a, and saving cross for others. But, um, you know, I know you guys from your podcast talk about, you know, you want to, um, put your case up in the plaintiff's case and then win the case in the defense case. So yeah, well, <laughs> sometimes it just happens that way, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but, but I, I, do, I think it's very case specific and, I, and I've tried cases against the same lawyers yeah. who, who do some, who in one case will call the defendant and then the next case won't. No, it's, it, yeah. it, I mean, cause we, you know, we, we will do it uh, in, in, and like to in the right case, but I mean, it is something you have to make a, it's, it's not like there's one way to do it every time. Sometimes it's better to do it, but you know, you like, I, I mean, it's no secret to you. I mean, we like momentum in our case. So we, you know, if we can play a number of, you know, uh, you know, people who testify good for our case and, and through cross and you don't get to stand up and say anything, well, that's, that's good for me. I mean, that, that makes my, uh, you know, it, it makes it harder for you to, to sort of come back from. Um, so like in a, in a medical malpractice case, I mean, you know, we always, you know, you know, if, if you've got multiple defendants and, and then I cross one of them in my, uh, in my case, even though I, I might be able to prevent their lawyer from directing them, I can't prevent the other you know, right. defense lawyers from, from doing a quote cross, uh, you know, but which is really like a softball direct, you know, kind of thing that's going to bog down my case. It's going to, um, you know, and they're, and they're going to put their themes in it. They're going to put their, you know, you know, plant their seeds in the jury. So I generally wouldn't do that if I think that there's a good chance that somebody's going to cross after I'm done. Right. I am, I am having a total flashback to when I first started practicing and it was like the first trial I ever worked on. And we were talking about the order of proof and you guys kept talking about calling somebody on cross and, and I had no idea what you were talking about. Like that is something either you didn't learn in law school or I missed, I missed that day right. and those questions because I was like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Like it's direct cross redirect. Like what is calling somebody on cross in your case in chief? Like it took me forever to get my mind around that. And when I finally did, I was like, you can do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not only can you do it, but it can it be very effective. Right yeah. 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 That's right. The practicalities guys, I mean, it has a lot to do with when you can get your witnesses there yes. as to what your order of proof. I mean, we're all, we're all, slaves to the schedule of our expert witnesses and the other people that we're calling as witnesses in those cases. So we're, we're really working around our expert schedules most of the time anyway. Oh yeah. yeah. That, that, and, you know, and, and, and other fact witnesses and, you know, it's always nice to have a few depositions, you know, by video in the can, you know, so when the, when, you know, it's like three, three 30 in the afternoon, you're like, judge, I don't have any more witnesses. And the judge is like, well, either call a witness or rest, you know, and like, well, I can play a video. I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> Let me play that. <laughs> <So>. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but uh yeah so um well, uh, I, I know there's a lot more that we wanted to uh, to talk to you about, Dan, about just uh, just sort of defense strategy. But this has been really good and we've taken a lot of your time. So um, so I appreciate it. I just want to make sure. Is there anything else that um, that, you know, we haven't talked about, about the um, the Thomas uh, on behalf of Calhoun uh, case against Josie, Joshi that you uh, tried last year in, in DeKalb County uh, that you want to make sure our listeners have heard? No, I think I think you guys have covered it really well and asked a bunch of really good questions about it. So um, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed talking to you all just in general. Yeah. Well, I, I should ask you this because so, uh, you know, we haven't really talked about it. You know, DeKalb County in Georgia, it, no secret is is plaintiffs enjoy being there and defendants generally don't. You're in DeKalb. Um and and I'll, and I'll, I'll in fact I'll, I'll go even further because I remember in the case that we tried with you we were in DeKalb and it's one of the few times when you, the during jury selection the the jury would not stop talking about how much they hated the hospital and uh, and we were like okay but you can be fair right you know you can set all aside right? you know it's like sure. we're, like we're in the opposite position to where we normally are and uh, you know so they were very fair right? they they absolutely were <laughs> <laughs> well not, not only that Dan but I I don't know if you remember this but we generally we filed a uh, bench brief on on striking jurors for cause. And um, and we had filed it in that case. And uh, I, after the case was done, I remember you calling me up and being like, you know, can you send me a copy of that uh, <laughs> that bench brief you all had? And I was like, well, I don't know, Dan, I might have a trouble finding that that brief right now. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I remember that was going to be the, the if there was going to be a new trial motion in that case, it, it, re, it pertained to jury selection. I, I remember that very specifically. Yeah. But um, yeah, and. Um, no, do we have what your question was, you know? Yeah, so as a, from a, my, my question is when you're walking into a, a, a I mean, to, to get a defense verdict, and I'm not saying they, they just hand out plaintiff's verdict, but it, it you know, it, it's it's a better place to try cases from a plaintiff's perspective. How, how do you prepare for that? And how do you um, change up your strategy, you know, when, as opposed to when you're maybe in a more conservative county that's not as friendly to plaintiffs? So um, I, do, I do think you start a little bit behind the eight ball in DeKalb County. Um, I think you still get a you still get a, a fair trial there from DeKalb County jurors in medical cases. I think it's more I think it's more challenging in other types of premises liability, commercial liability, product liability cases. Um, I think there you just have to be from a defense perspective. You just have to be really aware of who's going to who's getting on that jury, because you could have a composition of jurors um, that can really hammer you into Cab County. Um, but if you get what I consider to be a representative um, part of the community of the Cab, the county of the Cab, from all over the county, and it's and it's a good representative of an extremely diverse and well-educated county, yeah. um, then I think you're okay. Uh, but it's you're right. It's a, it's a tougher venue than some of the other places that we we try. It's not the toughest, but um, you know it's it's not unlike Chatham County, I think. And you guys may you guys may disagree with that. Yeah, practice there. But to me, it's very similar to that. In, in my mind, Chatham is um, you. It, 
I mean, it is overall a, a good place to be, but there are some very conservative pockets within Chatham. And so you can walk into a courtroom thinking you're going to get, you know, a, a good jury. And all of a sudden you've ended up with a, a, a pretty conservative jury. I mean, so it's it, it I, I don't I'm not sitting here saying Chatham's not a good place to be. It is. But they, but there are times when you wouldn't get as as favorable of a jury as you might expect in Chatham. Yeah, I, you know, I think from from our perspective, you know, we have to consider the venue no matter what. And yeah. Cap County is a venue that more times than not probably adds value to the case, either the likelihood of prevailing or the amount of an award if the case is lost. But at the same time, it's not something where if an attorney that I'm against says, well, you know, you're going to have to pay a premium because the case is in DeKalb County. You know, it's not that linear of a relationship in DeKalb. There, there are some counties where that might be true. But, you know, I, I think we can both point to um, a bunch of great plaintiff's verdicts in DeKalb County, but a lot of defense verdicts, too. Yeah, yeah, and, no, I, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, well, Dan, uh, I really appreciate it, man. And um, and I just want to remind everybody that we've been talking about the Arlene Thomas uh, on behalf of uh, Lisa Calhoun versus uh, uh, Dr. A.J. Joshi and Radiology Associates of DeKalb, uh, which was tried in September of 2019 last year in DeKalb County uh, and resulted in a defense verdict uh, for Dr. Uh, on for Dr. Joshi. And we have been talking to Dan Huff, uh, senior founding partner at Huff Powell Bailey uh, in Atlanta with offices in Columbus, Gainesville and Raleigh, North Carolina. And um, and you can look up Dan if you go to HuffPowellBailey.com. That's H-U-F-F-P-O-W-E-L-L-B-A-I-L-E-Y.com. And um, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys for having me again. Congratulations on the podcast. It's, it's remarkable. I'm a big fan. Oh, thanks. We really appreciate that. We really appreciate that. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, 
um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go, and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>